Tonight, for just a little while, I want to talk to you about the book of Acts. The book of Acts has many different themes, but one of those themes is that of Christian conversion. In fact, there are up to 10 different conversion accounts recorded in the book of Acts. And it's like we would say, you'd study the Gospels to learn who Jesus is. You'd study the book of Acts to understand what you'd need to do to become a Christian, to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, Luke, the historian, he records 10 different gospel accounts or 10 different accounts that record how to be converted. And the reason behind that is because each account records something invaluable and instrumental. And this is what I'm talking about. In Acts chapter 2, the Bible teaches us that even those who killed Jesus, even they themselves could be forgiven of their sins. And that when you are baptized, you are added to the church and that the church is where the saved are. In Acts chapter 8, we learn with the Ethiopian eunuch that you do, not know, you do not need to know everything to become a Christian, but you do have to believe with everything, with your entire heart. We learn in Acts chapter 8 that with Simon the sorcerer that once you sin after becoming a Christian, you don't need to be rebaptized every time you sin. There's the second law of pardon, and that is to confess our sins one to another and our sins will be forgiven. To pray about him. We learn in the threefold account in Acts chapter 9, 22, and chapter 26 that the Apostle Paul demonstrated that not even a visit from the resurrected Lord, followed by belief, prayer, fasting, and repentance, not even this forgives sins, that our sins are forgiven at the point of baptism. And lastly, in Acts chapter 16, the Bible teaches that. The urgency of baptism in that the Philippian jailer and his whole family, they were baptized the same hour that they believed. So we see just from looking at these accounts that each account teaches us something important, something that the others perhaps do not. These are some of the most well-known accounts that record conversion, but there are two successive accounts in Acts chapter 18 and Acts chapter 19 that we likely don't know as well. Now, these events both take place in Ephesus. They both deal with the same subject of the baptism of John. These are two events of doctrinal correction, but they contain two very different reactions. So, for tonight, we want to ask ourselves, why? Was it, or is it that the Bible contradicts itself, or is it much more likely that Luke the historian is teaching us something very, very specific with these two successive accounts. For a little while tonight, I want us to study the way of God more accurately, coming from Acts chapter 18 and verse 26. Our goal for this study is going to be to reconcile the conversion of Apollos with the conversion of the 12 disciples in Ephesus. Our first question will be, was Apollos rebaptized? And if not, then why not? Secondly, we'll look to see why were the twelve rebaptized? And lastly, we'll answer the question Does the rebaptism of the twelve teach us about baptism today? And without further ado, we'll go ahead and proceed with our study. And to begin with, we want to look to Acts chapter 18 and read verses 24 and 25, where we learn of a man named Apollos. 
Now the Bible says there, Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So here we learn about a man named Apollos. We learn about his personal background and his personal upbringing. This man was no ordinary man. He grew up being a Jew in Alexandria. Now Alexandria had the third most Jewish population, the highest Jewish population, third only to Jerusalem and Rome. This place was surrounded by Jewish people. There were synagogues everywhere. And this town in particular, Alexandria, was known for its great library. Alexandria was the Oxford of the Middle East, Harvard before Harvard, Yale before Yale. And this place, it gave Apollos the background necessary to give him the most, the highest, the best opportunity to exercise his faculties, both intellectually and spiritually. This man, he was trained in the Grecian education system, but not only that, he was mighty in the scriptures, the Bible says. J.W. McGarvey says this concerning this man's background. That he was an Alexandrian accounts in part for his learning and indicates the character of it. For Alexandria, having been for at least two centuries the chief point of contact between Greek and Hebrew literature, had now become the chief seat of Hebrew learning. Bottom line, this guy is a big deal. This guy's not an ordinary Jew. This guy is the top of the top in education. He is a brilliant man, an eloquent man. But there was one problem. The Bible says there in verse 25 that he only knew the baptism of John. And he did not know about Christian baptism. But for many of us today, it's quite the opposite. We know about Christian baptism, but we don't know so much about the baptism of John. And in order for us to truly understand and appreciate why this was a problem, we're going to first need to look at what the baptism of John even was, what that even consisted of, and if there even is or was a difference. So to begin with, we see that in John's baptism, John the Baptist commanded that they believe on the one who was to come. Acts chapter 19 verse 4, Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. So they were commanded to believe. But not only that, the people were commanded to repent in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 5, John said, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So they believed, they repented, they confessed their sins. But not only that, they were commanded to be baptized. The Bible says in Luke chapter 3 and verse 2, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, 
preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And lastly, we see in Matthew chapter 3 that many people were baptized. This had a great response. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 5, Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But I want us to look at something else that is spoken of about John the Baptist's work. Now this was predicted before John the Baptist was born. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 76, the Bible says this, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. One thing I want us to take out of this is something that not a lot of Christians understand or something that we don't really talk about. In the verses we just read, the Bible says very explicitly that John's baptism was for the remission of sins. Now, that was not a typo. We read this verse to prove that even before John the Baptist came, this was explained. John's baptism was for the remission of sins. Now, here's what you should be thinking. Here's what we should be thinking. Isaac, how could you possibly have the forgiveness of sins, the remission of sins before Jesus died, Jesus Christ died on the cross? It's a really simple answer, really simple when we talk about it. The same way that the Jews in the Old Testament had their Old Testament sacrifices, it's the same concept with John's baptism. Their past obedience was reliant on and dependent on Christ's future sacrifice. It's the same thing about how we give a check for surety of a payment. Their past obedience was sufficient because it was reliant upon the payment, the cash to come in, Christ's blood. And that's how come it's not a contradiction or anything of that sort. John's baptism was for the remission of sins. But up to this point, what you may have seen and what you may be thinking is that, Isaac, this is quite similar to what we do. We believe, we repent, we confess, and we're baptized for the remission of sins. But one thing we need to understand is that similarity does not equate identity. These two baptisms are two baptisms. There are differences. We'll look to the left. We have John's baptism explained and Christian baptism to the right. What we've just studied in just that rapid pace was that, first off, the limited, the limited commission was for the Jews only. John's baptism was only for the Jews, Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. But Christian baptism, the great commission, is for all people, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Now in John's baptism, you were commanded to believe to, in the Messiah who was to come. We believe in the Christ who has come and is coming again in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. They were commanded to repent. We are commanded to repent. They were commanded to confess their sins, Mark 1, verses 4 and 5. But we confess our faith. Matthew chapter, excuse me, Romans chapter 10, and verse 9. They were baptized for the remission of their sins, and we are baptized for the remission of our sins. 
But one thing we need to understand is that another fundamental difference is that John's baptism was under the Old Testament. Christian baptism is under the New Testament. And here we're starting to see why what Apollos preached was a problem. It was a simple problem of timing. Once Christ, Christ died on the cross of Calvary, not only was the Old Testament nailed to the cross and therefore done away with, but at the same time the New Testament was ratified. And we learn that teaching from Colossians chapter 2, 13 and 14, Ephesians 2, and Hebrews 9, 16 and 17. So this was a problem in the truest sense. John the Baptist is preaching, or his baptism was being preached after the cross of Calvary, when it was expired. This was, a, this was a serious problem that needed to be noticed and acknowledged, and we learned that it was acknowledged in Acts chapter 18 and verse 26. We learned about the politics correction. The Bible says there, So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue when Aquila and Priscilla heard him. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They explain to him the way of God more accurately. Here we learn that a Christian couple named Aquila and Priscilla took Apollos aside and corrected him in private. They explained to him the difference between Christian baptism and John's baptism. But what we want to notice is we want to always as teachers leverage a teachable moment. Because when we look at this verse, many people in the religious world, what they'll do is they'll say, look, Akula and Priscilla, this young Christian couple, this woman, she taught this man. And what they'll, they'll do is that they'll take this verse and they'll say, look, women can teach. They can teach in the church. But we know that's not true. The Bible teaches against that. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 34, let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. But they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is shameful for women to speak in church. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 11 says, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was born first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. In other words, we know from the Bible that women cannot teach publicly. And this teaches us or explains to us that Apollos was not corrected by Aquila and Priscilla in a public way. In other words, it would have been extremely ironic and contradictory for Aquila and Priscilla to correct the error of Apollos in an erring way. Makes no sense. Makes no sense at all. And I know that I'm preaching to the choir. You guys definitely know this is not some California doctrine. This isn't my own idea. But let us look to someone who maybe we wouldn't think of as just agreeing with us off the cuff. One commentator, one scholar says, It should be observed that Priscilla took part with her husband in giving more perfect instruction to Apollos. And this illustrates the manner in which certain faithful women were eminent helpers of the apostles and evangelists in the spreading of the gospel. This should not, however, and cannot 
Without a deceitful handling of the scriptures, he urged as proof that even the most eminent of the female helpers took part in public teaching. So this is just to show, this is not just something we believe. Other people believe the same thing. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to come to this conclusion. But the point is this, we can learn from how Aquila and Priscilla corrected Apollos. And this is what I mean. There's two extremes to false doctrine. They're saying you can do something that you cannot do. But then they're saying you cannot do something that you can do. We understand the one half that women can't teach in public. We know that. We get that. But sometimes there are people in the church where they go the second mile unnecessarily. And they say just because a woman cannot teach in public, she can never teach. But we learn from this example that is not true. A woman can teach anyone and everyone in the proper setting, in private. She can even teach a preacher. And we know this is a fact from this verse and because of what Paul says to Titus. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 3, Titus is written to and told, The older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. That they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. So we know it is a fact that women can teach. They are specifically taught to teach the younger women. Teachers of good things. Now the reason why I want to emphasize this point so much this evening is because Throughout COVID, the work at home in Oakdale, it's kind of changed. It's kind of shifted. I help with the work out there, and the work has changed everywhere you go. But one of the parts of the work that we've kind of had to adapt is we do a lot more studies with people through Zoom or online. And this past year and some change, it's allowed me, it's given me the opportunity to study the Bible with people I would have never studied beforehand. For example, there have been sisters throughout the country that we would have never needed to study the Bible, but we can online. And the single thing I hear every sister say, almost every sister is this, Isaac, women can't teach. Why do I got to know what this means? I can't teach publicly, so why should I even, why should I even try? But we learn from this example that that should not be the proper conclusion. We're not doing our part as a congregation if a young person can come to that conclusion at all. Because we learn from Aquila and Priscilla that women can correct in private. So may we always encourage that each and every person in the body studies their Bible for their own selves so that they can be an Aquila, that they can be a Priscilla for someone else and whatever capacity they can be. In whatever capacity. But not only can we learn from those who corrected, but we can also learn from the one who was corrected. After Aquila and Priscilla heard Apollos' preaching, they go, they take him aside in private, and 
look at it this way. You got the top of the top education. You got a man who's brilliant. He's brilliant. He's trained in philosophy. He's mighty with the scriptures and the spiritual things of life. But this man, the one who had the right to be haughty, he shows us his humility. The one who could have said, no, 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 I know what I'm talking about. You don't. Who are you to teach me? He shows us that this man, the Bible tells us, it shows us this man was moldable. He was not too big for his britches. And what this teaches us, everybody, but especially those who teach and preach, is that we're not infallible. We're never above reproach. We do make mistakes. And we ought to be humble enough to learn from them and to take other people's correction and their advice. So may we learn how Aquila and Priscilla corrected, but also how Apollos received the correction. Verses 27 and 28 of Acts chapter 18 detail the conclusion of this chapter. And they say, And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, and when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Now the brethren, they give him an accommodation. They recommend him to the brethren in Achaia. And he goes there and he performs a great help. He's a great help to the church. But in Acts chapter 19, our story shifts from that of Apollos to these 12 men, these 12 disciples in Ephesus. Now, we got to remember this before we move on. When the Bible is first written, there was no such thing as chapters, chapter divisions, and verses. So this would have been one continuous train of thought. We just learned of Apollos preaching John's baptism in Ephesus, but now we hear of 12 people who likely just obeyed John's baptism preached by Apollos, in Ephesus. As Apollos leaves, the Apostle Paul, he comes into town. And the Bible says this, reading verses 1 through 7. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Verse 4. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. So like I just said a second ago, the Apostle Paul, he visits Ephesus, the scene of the ending of Acts 18. We see there he confronts these men, these people who claim to be disciples. And what does he do first? He asks them questions about their conversion. And we can learn the same thing. We can learn the same tactic. When you meet someone who claims to be a Christian... And they start talking, and they start using lingo or terminology that we don't use, or we mean something different than they mean. 
what we ought not do is stop there and start, you're this, you're that. We should ask them questions, find a common ground. The Apostle Paul asked them about the Holy Spirit. If they received the Holy Spirit when they were baptized, when they believed. Now to us, the next couple of verses, they're going to be kind of foggy. They're not going to be something that we talk about a lot. Why would he ask them about the Holy Spirit if they received it? We learn from Romans chapter 1 and verse 11 that one of the responsibilities of an apostle was to lay on hands on someone so that they could receive spiritual gifts. And that these spiritual gifts were going to aid and help mature this new start congregation. That's exactly what we find out here. Paul asks them, have you received the Holy Spirit? Can you do spiritual gifts? Because that's my job to give. They say, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. That answers the question. Now here's something that's pretty technical we won't spend too much time on. Because John's baptism was only for the Jews, many scholars believe that this is a mistranslation. Because if you were a Jew, you would have heard about the Holy Spirit throughout the Old Testament. Scholars believe that this verse is actually saying, we have not so much as heard whether the Holy Spirit is given. We haven't even heard the day of Pentecost even happen. And from verse 6, him, Paul, laying hands on them, that's likely what that means. He was wanting to ask them if they had received spiritual gifts. The answer was no. Thus he knew they had not been baptized in the proper baptism. And as we see, the main point is that these 12 men, these 12 disciples, were rebaptized after hearing the preaching of Paul, after listening to Paul's teaching. Now we get to the main point of our study. We just read in Acts 18 that Apollos was corrected because of his views on John's baptism. And he wasn't rebaptized. That's not what the text says. But in Acts 19, why is it that these 12 men, they are rebaptized? Seems like they got the same problem. They had a problem with how they viewed John's baptism. So why are there two different reactions? Is this a contradiction? Now, when we study or when we answer a question like this, we need to explain some particulars because some brethren actually do believe that Apollos was rebaptized. But like all of us just read, it does not say that. And we come, we are the people that have the, the saying, we speak where the Bible speaks, and we're silent where it's silent. So therefore, you cannot come to that conclusion from the text alone. So because the text doesn't say that, that helps us determine, no, he was not rebaptized. And on top of that, we know that Luke, who specializes in conversions, he would not leave out a detail this important. He's trying to teach us something instrumental. And thirdly, we read this also. The brethren in Ephesus commended, they recommended Apollos in Achaia. Now, would you ever recommend a brother, or excuse me, would you ever recommend someone who was not a Christian to help a congregation in evangelism? No, you would not do that. 
So we can see that Apollos is a disciple in the truest sense. He was not rebaptized. But these 12 men are, and here's why. Apollos obeyed John's baptism before Jesus died on the cross while it was active. But these 12 men obeyed John's baptism after it had expired. That's how these two jive together. That's how they harmonize. It is not proven as or thought of as a contradiction. So after covering this, we have answered a few of our uh, opening questions. Number one, was Apollos rebaptized? If not, then why not? No, he was baptized in John's baptism before the death of Jesus, which would have been sufficient in preparing him for the kingdom. Question number two, why were the twelve rebaptized? Because they obeyed John's baptism after Jesus had died on the cross, and John's baptism was inspired and no longer in effect. But lastly, we'll look at question number three. Does the rebaptism of the twelve teach us about baptism today? And the answer is yes. This point may be the one that helps us the most in our everyday life. Because this teaches us there is a wrong way to be baptized. That is a biblical concept. There is a wrong way to be baptized. Yes, they teach the fact that there is a wrong way to be baptized. And not everyone who comes into contact, contact with water is baptized scripturally. Baptism must be for the right reason and done the right way. Jesus said concerning baptism in Mark chapter 16 and verse 15, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. The verse is short and simple, but I want to look at these two concepts before we conclude our study. Number one, is not everybody believes this. Some people believe you believe, then you're saved. You just got to be baptized later. It's a sign, an outward sign of an inward change. But that's wrong for a few logical and scriptural reasons. Number one, Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. How do you do that? baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So baptism is where the change occurs. It's not afterward. We learn that in baptisms, when we come into contact with the blood of Christ, we put on Christ, Galatians 3.27. We know that from Romans 6, when you're baptized, you die to sin, you're free to sin, you live to God. So therefore, very logically, we can see that the change doesn't come before baptism, it comes during baptism. We just debunked a third of Christendom, so to speak. Formula number two. Some people believe you're baptized, then you're saved, you just got to believe later. And that's the one I was baptized under. That's the Catholic religion. You're baptized as an infant, then you sin, or you're saved because they believe in original sin until the hereditary 
providence, and then you just believe later. They teach you later, and then you're good. But this, like the first, is wrong for multiple reasons. Number one, you learn of the purpose of baptism. In Acts 2 and 38, it's for the remission of sins. It's for, if it's for the forgiveness of sins, then a baby doesn't need one. And we learn that a baby is pure and innocent from Matthew 18, 1 through 4. Because Jesus says, unless you become like little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Question. Was Jesus saying you've got to become like a little sinner before you enter heaven? And I know it's silly, but that proves the point. No. You don't need to be baptized if you're an infant or a baby because babies have no sin. Not only are they the wrong candidate, they can't even, they can't even do the commands that precede baptism. They can't believe, they can't repent because they have no need to. They can't confess, and they're even baptized the wrong way. They're sprinkled when it's clear that the scriptures teach a burial. So thus we see these two commonly held beliefs are wrong. The true formula is that one is to believe, then they're to be baptized, and then they're saved. What we've proven in the example of Apollos is that if one needs to be rebaptized because of incorrect timing, then how much more so would someone need to be rebaptized for incorrect teaching? That's what we prove here. And our last verse, before we conclude, our second to last verse is this. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, the Bible says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. This baptism is the one that Jesus commanded and taught in Matthew 28, 18-20. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Lord willing, you have heard the way of God more accurately. But maybe you're here today, and you're someone that has never obeyed the gospel, has never been baptized in Christian baptism, has not been baptized in the scriptural way. We learn that from the gospel plan of salvation that this is a simple plan. Faith comes by hearing and by hearing the word of God. Then we're commanded to believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, the son of God. We're commanded to repent, to turn to a, from a life of sin to a life of service to God. Acts 17 and verse 30. We're commanded to confess with our mouths, not our sin like the, like the Jews did with John's baptism, but our faith. We're to be baptized for the remission of sins and to live a faithful life. But maybe you're here and you're already a Christian and you've sinned and you want to confess this sin. Praise be to God that we don't have to be rebaptized every time we sin and that the effectual, fervent prayer of the righteous man availeth much. 
And if there's one of either class, please come as we stand and sing the song of invitation.